Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. I want to thank our uh, sponsors. I had mentioned we didn't have a sponsor yet for this week, so uh, now we have two. But I want to thank um, the Bombs Greta Bomb for sponsoring this month in memory of uh, her grandmother, Rachel Bas from Dvoros, Neshama Shadavan Aliyah. And also a, a big thank you to Alana Navran Belazan for sponsoring, for a Rafu Shlema, for Yaakov Meir, Yerachmiel Ben Chaya. We should have strength and a full refuah shlema and mirza Hashem. Okay, we're continuing where we left off, left off in the middle of this essay in Be'emunasa Yechia, the wonderful sefer of Rishlama Volba. And if you remember last week, just to review quickly and then ask you if you did your homework. You didn't know that you'd have to turn in an assignment. But uh, last week, we talked about the fact that Amuna is not Amuna is not philosophical, it's not ideological. Amuna is a mida, it's a character trait. Patience is a character trait, generosity is a character trait, and faith is a character trait. Faith is not a belief, it's a character trait. Now obviously it is a belief, you, you have to believe in order to live with faith. Um, however, it's really all about how we conduct ourselves. I remember once uh, hearing, I thought very um, poignantly, thank you, we just thank you, uh, I remember hearing very poignantly that in theory we have three categories. You could believe, be a believer, you can be an atheist, or you could be an agnostic. A believer lives life that God is there. There's a creator, there's an omnipotent individual who's aware of our actions, who has expectations of us, who interacts with us in our world, for whom uh, nothing is impossible, and is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. That's a person who believes, who lives with faith. The atheist says there is no God. Our existence is random, it's chance, it's a big bang. Whatever the atheist attributes it to, it's not to God. There's no higher power, there's no God, there's no one in control, there's no one who has some objective moral value system of us. It's all relative, everything is subjective. And the agnostic tries to live in between. The agnostic is the ideology that says, I hedge my bets. I don't know if there's a God or there isn't a God. There's a lot of evidence in support of there being a God, and there's a lot of questions that raise doubt and uncertainty, and therefore I am an agnostic. And the point that I once read is, in theory, in philosophy, you could be one of three. But in practice, you only have the choice to be one of the two. So if we're sitting and debating the evidence for God's existence, can you prove it, can you not prove it? There are three options. He definitely doesn't exist. He definitely does exist. I'm not sure. But when it comes to everyday living and making the choices in our lives and having judgment and having a relationship, we're either living our lives with the assumption there is a God or we're living our lives with the assumption there's not. There is no middle ground. There's no third option. There's no third option. So there's the philosophy of God and then there's the practice of how we live our lives. And that's what Revolb is saying is that in practice, he's quoting the Chazanish, that midas emuna, he netiyadaka me'adinus anefesh, the Chazanish had said that Amuna is not a philosophy and ideology. Amuna is a midah. It's a character trait. And just as I work on other character traits of mine, and just as certain things in the environment or people challenge character traits I'm working on, the same is true with my character trait, my midah of Amuna. But, but Amuna, make no mistake, he says, is a midah. And then the second point that we learned last week is the more fragile something is, the finer it is, the more vulnerable it is. The more easily it's broken, it's shattered. Things that are worth a lot of money are much more delicate, and therefore they require much more care, much more protection, much more vigilance. If you buy some magnificent sculpture, 
some blown glass, some getting it home is very hard. If you buy a rock, you throw it in your suitcase, it's very easy. The less valuable, the less fragile, the more valuable, the more fine, the more delicate, the more fragile something is. And amuna is in the area of something that is adin, it's fragile, it's delicate, it's fine. And therefore, it's very vulnerable, it's very fragile. And people's amuna gets broken, it gets shattered. Unless it's protected, unless we're guarding it, unless we are vigilant about it, it can so easily get broken. So we mentioned in the last week's class that I quoted from Rav Moshe and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky that one of the ways to grow our emuna muscle, one of the ways to improve our mida of emuna is to maintain a hashkacha pratis journal or diary. To live your life and look through your day for where Hashem is and to write it down. Because as just the exercise of writing it down, but certainly if you ever take a moment to review or reflect upon it, that you will feel His presence so much more in life and therefore be living with Him. You'll be expressing that, that emuna mida and working that emuna muscle. And I mentioned that after I learned that this summer, my family started a little, uh, my nuclear family started a um, WhatsApp group, our Hashgacha Pratis journal. And we try to each post something, or not force it, but when there's something to post. I did two funerals this week, and uh, both of them it rained the whole day, except for when we were in the cemetery. I, I posted, what a bracha. Wow. Uh, what an incredible Hashkacha Pratis. Yeah. Instead of getting soaked wow. by a downpour, even though it rained the whole day, oh, punk those moments. Yeah. Wow, thank you, Hashem. Thank you. Thank you, Hashem. So I gave that to you as your assignment. Did anyone do the homework? Yeah. Anyone start a journal? A diary? A WhatsApp group? A note on your phone? A notebook in your pocket? No. Okay, you all fell out of school. Okay, I guess we'll go weiter. See your homework again for next week. Try it. You'll see it'll change your life. It'll change your life. Kochos nefesh adam. We're on page Chav Dal of the second paragraph. That's what we were up to. Kochos nefesh adam is chalkim beramas adinosam ledargos shonos. The attributes of the soul of a person can be divided into different levels of how fine they are. Meaning, we human beings are complex. And we're made up of so many different components. Our personality has so many different attributes and appetites and desires and instincts and intuitions and challenges. We have certain kochos, we have certain energies, desires, needs, qualities, strengths, which are connected, which are gasos, and they're connected to the guf. Gasos means that they're base. They're crass, they're animalistic, and they're connected to the body. And then there are other qualities, there are other needs, there are other aspects of our personality, there are other perspectives, there are other strengths that we have, which are more connected not to the body, to the physical, but to the spirit, to the seichel, to our rational way of thinking, to the soul. What's an example, says Revolba? We have an internal drive to live. We want to live, to be alive. We're living in a time of, of horrific, horrific mental illness in which that drive in some is challenged. And when that drive in some is challenged, the person who long, no longer has a will to live, we call that mental illness. It's illness. It's illness without judgment. Just as we have no judgment of the person Chas gets diabetes or cancer or has a heart attack. We don't sit and judge them. 
assuming it's not connected to their lifestyle. We don't judge a person who's stricken with a physical illness without judgment. We have no judgment of a person who struggles with a mental illness, but a, a person who doesn't have the will to live is ill, is ill. The default, the healthy person has a drive, a will to live. The brain, the different parts of the brain are programmed that way, fight or flight, that we have this drive to live, to fight in order to be able to live. Where does that come from? Rutzon hachaim, that will to live. I'll just mention as an aside, I just said it in the 10 minutes of meaning with the, in our Mesil Sasharim 10 minutes, quoting from the Shla Kaddish. The Shla Kaddish translates, we're up to the meat of Zrizus in Mesil Sasharim, how to live with alacrity and zeal and energy, not to turn your life into one big pile of chametz, not to be lazy and procrastinate and push things off and never get to them, but to wake up, to identify goals, to make resolutions and plans how to achieve them, and then to pursue them and to mark them off and have that satisfaction and fulfillment. How to not just dream of our best self and never get there, but how to become that best version of ourselves. That's uh, our 10 minutes of meaning. So the Shlach Kaddish writes that when it says that the person became the nefesh chaya, when we became a living animated being, what does the word chaya mean? The Shlach Kaddish says, zariz. It means the difference between being alive and dead is not just the heart beating in our chest, but the measurement of whether you're alive or dead is whether you are lazy or whether you have energy, whether you procrastinate or whether you embrace and take advantage of every moment, whether your life is chametz or whether your life is matzah. Shmarta mesa matzos, Chazal say, don't just read it, guard the matzah, shmura matzah, but ushmarta mes ha mitzvos. Every good opportunity don't push it. I'll make the phone call later. I'll take out the garbage later. I'll visit the person later. I'll deliver the meal later. I'll get to that later. I'll clean the closet later. I'll make the... No. Now. You have something you need to do? Make a plan. Be organized. Have Live with order. Go pursue it. Go achieve it. To be alive. To be a live person is to be a person who lives with enthusiasm. And the Shlach Kodesh says the same thing is true. From which we derive exactly what Ravob is talking about here. is the mandate that the whole purpose of Torah Mitzvot is to inspire our lives, to live inspired lives. If observing Torah mitzvahs will be at the expense of your life, then we violate the Torah in order to preserve our lives, with the exception, of course, of the big three, Yareg V'ayav, or the three cardinal sins. So the simple understanding of V'chai is where we learn V'chai the mitzvahs are given for us to live with. Don't sacrifice your life at the expense of the mitzvahs, because then that defeats the very purpose for which we have them, with the exception of the big three. But the Shlach Kodesh says V'chai means V'chai Bahem. Mitzvahs are the platform that teaches how to live with Jesus. If I didn't have an obligation, and I understand that with women it's a different obligation than with men, but if I didn't have an obligation to daven in the morning, I'd sleep till 11. I'd sleep till halfway through the day. But you know, even if I'm on vacation, and no matter how tired I am, I have to wake up with a Jesus Because mitzvahs, certainly those that are time-bound, but all of mitzvahs create a framework and a platform to motivate, to inspire, to light a fire, to be zariz, v'chaibahem, that the mitzvahs give us the capacity, they propel us, they inspire us, v'chai, how? Bahem. Through mitzvos, we become zaris. So Ravobah here is writing that this will, this drive, Ritzona Chaim, the drive to be alive, to maintain our life, to fight for life, that is which part? That's the guf. If there's a danger, a threat, we perceive a threat, our adrenaline glands start pumping, our guard goes up, fight or flight. We are motivated, we are inspired to preserve life. In these moments where life seems threatened, so this drive makes us live life beyond our capacity. 
Every now and then you'll read the story in the news of the grandmother who weighs 100 pounds who lifted a car because their grandchild was trapped underneath it. And they're not Bubba mice. They're Bubba mice. You got a Bubby mice. Anyway, they're not, they're not just Bubba mice. Is it a Bubba mice? They're true stories. How could that be? You enter that Bubby in a weightlifting competition. She doesn't even come in last. She just doesn't even register. That's how poor it is. And yet she lifts a car to release a child. How, how's that possible? How's that possible? The answer is, Kodesh Baruch the Almighty created us in such a way that when we need to summon strength, we find capacity we never even knew we had. We never even knew we had. Which speaks to all of the subjects, the notion of why we're tested. Avram went through 10 tests. We each go through 10 tests. Nisayon, the word Nisayon, nace, miracle, test. Nace also means a flag. You look at your life and you want to know where did transformation take place? Where did you evolve and emerge? Where did you realize your potential to become the person you could become, you're meant to become? You can stick a flag into where you were tested because it's when we're tested that we're able to become the people that we're meant to be. Those are the moments that we're able to grow. Those are huge growth spurts. When all is well and good, when we're coasting through life, we don't usually have a great growth spurt. We find that great growth spurt when we have no choice but, when we have no alternative. You back a person into a corner, they're going to find a way. They're going to find a way out. I always tell the story when I quote, this is the Ramban's version of what a nace, a nisayon comes from the word nace, miracle, flag, and uh, a marker, and also, and also a test. All three mean the same because within each test, we realize the miracle in us and we can put a flag. It's a milestone. It's a, it's a marker in our lives that a big transformation took place. I always tell the story, you probably heard it from me before, I just recycle things over and over again. So, Baruch Hashem for everyone's poor memory. Um, so, the story of the, the exceedingly wealthy person who has a major uh, estate, and he has a dinner party, and before they sit down to dinner, he takes people on the tour of the estate. And one of his many pools, he has a pool that's filled with piranhas and sharks and dangerous fish. And he makes a joke. He says, anyone who can swim from one side to the other and come out alive, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want from my wealth. So the dinner party turns. They move on to go see the next rest of the tour. And they all of a sudden hear a splash. Everyone's shocked. They turn around, a splash. Who in the right mind was taking this host up on it? And they see somebody dressed in their, in their uh, tuxedo, swimming like a madman, making his way through, avoiding the madman getting to the other side in record time, climbing out soaking wet. So the host of the party is shocked, startled, turns to the man and says, I made you a promise, so tell me, what is it that you want? Anything you want, tell me what you want. And the man says, there's only one thing I want. I want to know who pushed me in. <laughs> so what's... The idea of the story... It's a great audience. Wow. Hashem. First of all, you people, people need to get out more, but this is a very good audience. So what's the idea of the story that Ramban says? We get pushed in. If you'd ask everyone at that dinner party, can you swim from one side to the other, they would tell you, not a chance. But you know what? When we get pushed in, we find the capacity, we dig deep, and we're able to persevere, and we're able to endure, and we're able to achieve things we never dreamt in our wildest dreams. And that's when Nisayon, and Nisayon tests us, it pushes us into that, to that pool, and we climb out the other side. So Revolbe here says, in these moments, the Ratzon Achaim, you get pushed into the pool of piranhas, you don't say, what are the statistical likelihood, I'll make it, and it's impossible, and I'm just going to give up and sink to the bottom. No, 
you just, without thinking, the grandmother lifts the car. She doesn't say, let me stretch a little bit, let me do a few push-ups. <laughs> she just summons the strength, the adrenaline rush. She does it. We reveal within ourselves strength, depth, we never knew. So the, the adrenal gland is part of the physical personality. Eating, the appetite, is part of the physical personality. We try to manage it, which is a lifelong journey for some, but we're trying to manage the, the appetite. Meidach, on the other hand, says Revolbi, the, the longing for money, the appetite for material things, is not part. Now, this is very counterintuitive. I would have thought, which category does money go in? If I have a category called Seichel and I have a category called Guf, or I have physical and I have spiritual or rational or intellectual, which one does it go in? I would have thought the craving for money goes Guf. Why do you crave money? to have things, why do we want things, to pamper ourselves, and so on. Sometimes we want money in order to survive. Sometimes the craving for money is just, is just uh, part of the survival. Where is the intellectual? Why does he put it on the other side? Because most people, once they have enough money to survive, that Shabbos is drasha, but b'nei gad and b'nei ruvain, and their priorities. And once we have, right, I told that story at the end about the fishermen. Once we have enough money to survive and we're still working, not still working because we could survive better, but there are people who have enough not only to survive, but they have enough for generations to come and they're still driven. Why? Often it's lahargish chashiv, because we want to be thought of as important, as big. It's honor. Oh, if kesef layizba kesef, Shlomo Melech writes, person who loves money, oh, if kesef layizba kesef. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied by money. Chazal, Chazal say, don't read it oiv kesef yiz bakesef, oiv Torah liyiz Torah. Basically, we have some insatiable appetites. So if we can channel the insatiable appetite to something more worthwhile, then we're using that quality of having an insatiable appetite. In other words, is having an insatiable appetite a good thing or a bad thing? It can be either. Yes, <laughs> it's both. If the insatiable appetite is for something dangerous, self-destructive, self-sabotaging, it's a bad thing. If the insatiable appetite is for something good, then it's a wonderful thing. So instead of reading it, So says Ravoba, the appetite for money at its most core is sometimes just for survival. And then it goes into the bucket of the goof. But if the appetite for money is honor, distinction, power, fame, then it's feeding another Appetite. And there's sometimes another appetite or craving we have, which is there are people who love honor. All they want is to see their name in print. You know the old marketing line? I don't care what you write about me as long as you spell my name correctly. There's a whole, there's a whole politicians, celebrities, there's a whole philosophy. It doesn't matter what the news is saying about them. They're sometimes happy to even manufacture bad news about them or negative news, as long as they spell your name correctly. So that, those are people driven by COVID. All they care about is how many friends and followers and likes and retweets and reposts. All they care about is their name and lights and lights. They're the brand. It's not that the Torah or the values or the ideals they're communicating, they are the brand. They're everything. So that's Taivas HaKavod. Chazal already tells us that a person who wants, runs after COVID, COVID runs away from them. And the person who runs away from COVID, COVID runs after them. And you see it. You see it often. You see it very often in life. 
And so there is this, some people have, this appetite, this need for covered. Dugma no seva says, Ravobe, here's another example. Chazalos gimbinyan gases haruach. Midazu amnam domela midas agaiva achiluk yesh benayim. Our rabbis sometimes talk about the Gemara in Sota Dafei that people have what, what Chazal call gasas haruach. From this word gas. What is this word gasas haruach? So we, we sometimes translate gasas haruach as arrogance. For Revolve is pointing out that that's really another word, gaiva. Gaiva, ge'eh, ge'eh, gimel alef hey, is gaiva, that's arrogance, that's ego. So what's gasas haruach? What's the difference? Gasar Ruach Hikasher Anochius Murgeshes Palichos Uvahan Hagos. Gasaruch is an inflated spirit. It's an inflated spirit. It's when the sense of I, the Anochi, everything about life is the I. In other words, what we would call today a narcissistic personality. It's dangerous, you know. Some some, some words become a catchphrase. So there are certain people who everyone around them, the the they like to label a narcissistic, you know. It's an actual diagnosis. Yes. And don't try to diagnose it if you don't have the tools to diagnose it. Yeah. Just because you're angry at your husband or your brother, your son or your neighbor, doesn't mean they're a narcissistic person. You have to have the tools to diagnose it. But it's what we would call today a narcissistic personality. The narcissistic personality is the anochius, that sense of the anochi, the ani, the I, the ego, the id, it drives everything. Creatively, they can even sometimes try to make it look like they're the most humble person, but all of that effort to look humble is to serve their anochi, their I. The narcissist is often very creative, very manipulative, and uh, is able to, to feed, to nourish that need for the narcissism, the anochi, in ways they think they're deflecting, but everyone around them sees through. So, gaiva is different. The, the person who's arrogant is not necessarily narcissistic. They're two different qualities. The arrogant person might not actually live life in such a way that they are demanding to be the center of attention, but it means that in their heart, when they're falling asleep, they feel superior to others. They think they're better. They think they're more entitled. They think they're more valuable. Their time is more valuable. Their advice is more valuable, and so on. yonos <laughs> al even great people can fall prey to gaiva, to arrogance. You know what arrogance is? It's not understanding and not realizing that the talents, the skills, the blessings we have, they're on loan. They're never part of our permanent collection. That whatever we have is on loan from God and it could disappear overnight. Whatever talent, whatever skill, whatever resources we have, they're on loan. As long as you live life understanding they're on loan, they could disappear you're considered humble, even if you understand your greatness. But if being great and you believe that you are the source of that greatness, and you believe the greatness is permanent and can't ever be taken away, we're going to read this soon in Sefer Dvarim. In our wonderful Muslim Sefer called Sefer Dvarim, we're going to read, Moshe Rabbeinu says, a person shouldn't live life and say, we shouldn't say that my kochi, it's my, you know why I made all that money? Because I'm smart, because I have vision because I dream, because I work hard, because I'm tenacious. It's my skill set which makes me the great athlete, the great artist, the great business person, the great this, the great that. Who? So the Ran, Drashas Haran writes 
The attitude, the philosophy we have to have is not to say, I'm a terrible artist, that's not humility. I'm a terrible athlete, that's not humility. I'm terrible in business, that's not humility. It's false humility, it's fake humility. It's often the narcissist who's expressing that fake humility to try to look humble to actually feed their narcissism. Right. What's real humility is when you say, Real humility is when you say, I have koach, Yes, I have skills. Yes, I have talents. I am blessed. They're not from me, they're from God. They create a great responsibility for me and they could disappear. So Revolba says, there's a difference between gasus haruach and gaiva. Gaiva is arrogance, gasus haruach is narcissism. Where are we going with this? Why is he saying all this? Why have we left the world of Amuna? And now we're talking about different personality traits and qualities in the world of, of Musr. When a person is immersed, saturated in physical desires and needs, the taivas gufnius, when all you care about is food, when all you care about is money, not for the fame part, but then you are, you are um, feeding this, you're, you're pushing away the finer qualities within you. So Ravoba says the following suggestion about the human psyche, about the human being. We are made up of these different components. And the more that we emphasize one component, the more diminished the other component. So we have physical attributes and we have a soul. And the more we invest in and the more we nourish, and the more we identify with, and the more effort we protect the physical, then the, more, the less we have for that which is fine, that which is vulnerable, that which is timeless, bless you, that which is immortal and eternal. The more we care about the soul, the less invested we're going to be in the body. There's a ratio, there's a proportion, there's a relationship between the two. You can't have it all. You can't identify with and invest in and, and, and care deeply about your body and your soul. Now, that doesn't mean your soul can't be growing while you still enjoy fine things in life, but it means you can't be defined by those fine things in life. Rabbi Danasi is described in the Gemara, Rabbi Danasi was an exceedingly wealthy man, extraordinarily wealthy. And yet the Gemara testifies about him that he never had personal benefit from his wealth in his life. So what does that mean? He didn't drive a nice car, he didn't live in a big home, he didn't eat delicious meat or drink fine wine, Mestama, he did do those things, but what it means is every time he indulged in them, it wasn't to satisfy some carnal uh, um, need or desire or appetite. It was to serve a greater purpose. It was hachnasas orchem. It was a meeting. It was to experience the ruchnius sheba, in the, the spirituality that was contained within it. You can enjoy the fine things in life, the good things in life, the physical things in life, but within the rubric and in the context and for the goal of advancing the spiritual, the soul, the soul. And what's his point? Now we're coming full circle exactly to Revolba's point and the point that I want to share with you this morning from him, which is the following. Whenever we're working on a quality, we have to identify not just how to achieve the quality, but what else? What are the obstacles? What are the threats? What are the dangers? Where are the pitfalls that normally challenge us when we're trying to live with that quality? So for example, let's take anger as an example. Let's take anger. It's hard not to get angry. We lose our cool. 
Some people have a longer wick, some people have a shorter wick than others. But it's hard, there are people who frustrate us. There are circumstances that frustrate us. Life challenges us. And to never raise your voice and never get angry and never lose your cool is very, very, very difficult. And yet, but the Ramban and the Ramam tell us that anger is a categorically bad quality. Ramban writes a letter to his son. We have to work on the Midas Akas. It's the worst quality. You have to be medaber. You have to speak to somebody pleasantly and sweetly and kindly in all times, in all places, no matter what. No matter what. You can't give in to that anger. Rabbeinu Yonah, we were talking about tests. So the Mishnah Perkyeva says Avram endured 10 tests. And the question is, what was the 10th test? It's never spelled out. Part of the fun of learning Sefer Bracious is trying to figure out how do you get to 10. What are Avram's 10 tests? Between the text and the Midrashim, where are the 10 tests? So the assumption of most is the 10th test which is the hardest test, was Ketis Yitzchak. What could be a greater test than that? That was the ultimate test. That was the last test. But some disagree. Rabbeinu Yonah writes, the tenth test was the purchase of, Machpe- of, of Maras HaMachpelah. That was the tenth test. What was such a test about it? What was such a test? So within Rabbeinu Yonah, there's different explanations. Some say the test was that when he found out that Sarah died because she thought he had killed Yitzchak, would he regret, would he regret Akedas Yitzchak? That was a test. All was well and good when he got to dance down, skip down the mountain with Yitzchak, and he passed the test. But when he found out the consequence and the unintended casualty of the test, would he regret it? Some say that was the tenth test. But others suggest within Rabbeinu Yonah, you know what the tenth test was? He had lost his wife, his other half, his precious partner, his everything. And now he had to negotiate with this used car salesman, this low life, this duplicitous, hypocritical Ephron Hachiti. And would he lose his cool? Would he yell? Would he scream? Would he become ruthless? Would he lose his cool? He'd be entitled to. He was in pain. He had just lost Sarah. He, the, the, the bigger part of himself had just been extracted from him. He was overwhelmed with grief. And he had to negotiate with this lowlife taking advantage of him, trying to exploit him, who was duplicitous saying one thing and, and doing another. And would he maintain his cool? That was the tenth test. Would he get angry in that circumstance? That's what the Ramban writes. We have to be medaber, we have to speak b'chol adam of b'chol ace to every person in every circumstance. I don't care who you're confronting. The worst person in the worst moment is treating you in the worst way. Just because they've compromised their integrity doesn't mean you have to compromise yours. The capacity to stay calm, cool, and collect. Do what you have to do with the person, but do it in a calm, cool way. Benachas. Always speak benachas. Very, 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 very hard to never, ever get angry. So let's say a person says, you know what, I'm working on anger. This week, this day, this month, this year, that's the quality I'm working on. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to read books on anger, I'm going to learn Torah about anger, I'm going to have an anger chart, an anger WhatsApp group, an anger meter, an anger whatever, anger evaluation, I'm going to wear an anger bracelet if I give in to anger, whatever you're going to do. Everything under the sun to work on anger. Well, one of the things you have to do is not just say I'm going to read and listen um, all about anger. What do you have to do? If you want to never get angry, what's one of the first things you have to do is identify what are the things that trigger you to get angry. If you just make an announcement, I'm never going to get angry. I'm going to do yoga, and I'm going to do uh, meditation, and I'm going to stay calm, and I'm going to this. It's nice. And then all of a sudden, you trip on something your kid left in the middle of the floor, and you stub your toe, and you start screaming, and you want to kill your kid. What happened to the meditation, and the yoga, and the anger books, and the anger WhatsApp group, and the anger uh, podcast, and the anger? It all went away when the situation with a family member, 
you know, whatever the, that happens in business and life triggers the anger. This is what the Ramchal, Rav Pinchas ben Yoyer, in his formula for human perfection, first is Zahirus and then is Rizus. Why is Zahirus before Zahirus? First, you have to identify what are the obstacles, what are the pitfalls. And only then, when you can live a mindful, conscientious life to avoid the pitfalls, now Zrizus. Now go after it. But if you go after it with zeal and energy and enthusiasm, but you haven't identified where the potholes are and where the pitfalls are, then you're going to tip right over. You're going you're gonna to fall. You're going to fall before you even, even get started. Zahirus has to come before Zrizus. So you have to know what are the things that trigger my anger? And how can I prepare to react differently? How can I avoid being triggered? How can I identify them? How can I have a strategy about them? And how can I therefore, how can I therefore defeat them? If I don't do that, I'm finished. So that's one example, but take any quality, anger, patience, greed, whatever quality you want, you could talk about what does it look like to defeat it, but that begins with understanding what will be the triggers, what ordinarily makes me fall, what knocks me off course. Somebody who wants to conquer alcoholism, somebody who wants to conquer anger, somebody who wants to conquer not looking at inappropriate images on the internet, someone who wants to conquer Lashonara, someone who wants to be on a diet and conquer their appetite to eat endlessly unhealthy foods. It's not enough to say, I want to do that. You have to say, well, what, tr- what happens? What happens? When I go to the Simcha and I go to the Shmorg and I'm starving because I've been all day, that's when I stuff my face and I regret it two minutes afterwards. So what would happen if I had a piece of fruit on the way to the wedding? What would happen if I ate, if I drank a liter of water before I went to the Simcha, aside from missing the chuppah because I'd be in the bathroom? What would happen? <laughs> what would happen? Would I, so you have to identify. So Ravol writes, the same is true. If you understand that Amuna, if we understand that Amuna is not an ideology or philosophy, it's not abstract or theory. Amuna is a mida. Just like with all other midos, I need to practice Zahirus, identify what's going to challenge it and eliminate it. The same is true with Amuna. Amuna is delicate. It's fine. We already established it. The more precious, the more valuable, the more delicate, the finer it is, the more vulnerable it is, the more fragile it is, therefore the more protection it needs. So how do we protect our quality of Amuna? By identifying what are the things that challenge it? What are the pitfalls and obstacles? And what are they? these kochos haguf, and even some of the kochos hasechel. What challenges my midah of amuna? So you know what challenges anger? If I have too little sleep, and if I haven't eaten, so I get hangry, you know, the quality of getting hangry, and if I this, and if I this, and I this, I lose my cool. So now I need to know, get the right amount of sleep, and, and don't, don't deprive yourself of food, and in going into that circumstance, know that when I'm with the whole family, over that yanta, Thanksgiving, that this person is going to act this way, be prepared for it, expect it, know about it, and navigate it. So if I do all of that, then I can avoid getting angry. If I do all of that, I'll avoid, I'm not getting angry, I avoid getting angry. Who's going to get angry? So the same thing is true with Amuna. I need to know how will the craving for honor, and the craving for food, and the craving for money, how will that impact? Because you can't have it all. You can't have it all. If you're living a life chasing honor and chasing money and chasing physical indulgences, then you are, have very little left for Amuna. In other words, you have 100 units in your life. How are you going to use them? How are you going to allocate those 100 units? We don't have an infinite number of units in life. I can view time the same way. I once saw a chart, I think I gave it out in Shabbat Shuvah, Shabbat Zagadol, a few years ago, which is a very scary way of looking at your life. But if you look at your life as you could break it down into either years or months doing it this way, but each one is a little box, and then you look at a grid of those boxes, 
and you fill in how many boxes have already been used. And you talk about what the average life is, and you see how much time you have left. It's a very different perspective on life. When we're living life, when we're living life, we feel that our lives are, we feel our lives are infinite and they're endless, and time stretches forever. But time doesn't stretch forever. And if we look at time as a finite, and we have to allocate it, and it's a resource that we run out of, then maybe we would allocate it and use it differently. So the same way there's X units, there's 24 units of time in a day, and there's X units of time in a week, and in a month, and in a year, and now it's not endless, I can't do it all. I can't binge watch Netflix, and play mahjong and tennis, and golf, and, and allocate two hours to Lush and Har a day with my friends and my family, and say, I'm also going to do X, Y, and Z. You cannot do it all. I don't care how sleep deprived you are, you cannot do it all. Time is finite. So we can either just live life and then bemoan the fact that we ran out of time for the important things, or we can understand and appreciate that time is finite, it's a limited resource, and now determine proactively how do I want to use it. And the same is true in this other area of life. I have a finite number of units I can dedicate. So how do I identify? Who, who am I? Where is my, where is my appetite? For money, for honor, or for amuna? Because you can't have it all. Am I living my life with the assumption that God is there? I have units I can allocate to anxiety, to worry, to fear, or to turning to Hashem and saying, passport's going to work out, the flight's going to work out, the thing's going to work out, it's going to work out. And if it doesn't, it wasn't meant to work out. That's also called working out. It's what's meant to be. It is what's meant to be. It is, it is what it is. And it is by design. And it is how it's supposed to be. That doesn't make it sound painful. It can be unbearably painful. But my worrying about it won't make it better. When I've taken all my initiative and I've done everything I can, one then worrying about So I can allocate units of my personality to worry, or I can allocate them to Amuna. But I can't have both because they are in direct conflict. They're in direct conflict. I shared in the Parsha class on Tuesday. I told you I believe in recycling. I'm the biggest environmentalist in the community. <laughs> so I said in the Parsha class, Rashi, in this week's Parsha, when Moshe says, I can't carry you alone. I can't carry you. You're, you're miserable. You're incorrigible. You're such a heavy burden on me. And Rashi says, it teaches They were apikorsim. Why were they apikorsim? Because they were contentious. They had fights with each other over money. They were cynical. They would accuse Moshe falsely. Why do you use the word apikoris to describe that behavior? So Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, you know why they're apikorsim? Because when God is not in your life, when you're an apikoris, a heretic, and you deny God in your life, then you're going to fight with your friend over money. Then you're going to cynically accuse others falsely. Then you're going to live your life seeking honor and glory and having to put yourself above others. They were apikorsim. A person who behaves that way, I don't care how much they shuckle, I don't care how religious they look on the outside, I don't care how many tehillim they zug, but a person who acts that way is an apikoris. It means inside they don't really believe that God's in charge. A person who lives with belief, with faith that there's a Hashem in charge, if you allocate your units, your resources of your, your units of personality, your units of energy, your units of self-identification, if you allocate them towards emuna, then you're not going to fight with other people. Hashem gives them what they need, Hashem gives you what you need. No, that doesn't mean you let people walk all over you or hurt you. You hold someone accountable who's done something illegal or immoral to you, but your life is not defined by fighting and contentiousness and tension and ruthless competition over money. You're not judging others, you're not looking at others, you're not evaluating others, you don't think you're better than others. Kodesh Baruch is in charge. So I don't care how religious you look on the outside, if you live that way, says, says Rav Nachman, you're an apikoros. So we have limited and finite units 
of these things, our personality and the like, and it's all a question of how we allocate them. Let's just end this paragraph. It's not hard to look at modern technology and understand how it actually brings us to Emunah. To Emunah. Chavetz Chaim said that every innovation is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's way of teaching us something about his wor- in the, the, the world, the spiritual world, not just the physical world. The Chavetz Chaim said this about, um, I think he said it about the car. He said it about the telephone. And it's true today, certainly, in, in other areas of technology. Let me ask you a question. The fact that Wi-Fi, we can invisibly connect to something. That's not a, a metaphor for, for spirituality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To invisibly connect to something? And, and depending on our capacity, we can connect to it with different speeds of download and upload? That's not a metaphor for, techno- for, for, for ruchnius, for spirituality? How many drushes have been given about ways you know, giving us the way and correcting us without judgment, and you know, how many drushes have been given us about, about GPS, the map, how to get to our destination. Says today, science and technology, there's no contradiction to Torah. It's all charting a pathway how to get to Torah. But even with all of that, it will not get us to this delicate, fragile, fine lifestyle of the quality of emuna which is inside us. This is not theory, and it's not just ideology. It's not an idea. It's not a theory or an idea that you could live with Amuna. It's not, oh, nice, I heard of someone, I read a story about somebody who lives with Amuna. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It's not a, a children's story, a fable. It's not a myth. It is possible. It's true. It's a personality trait any more than mythology about the person who never got angry, or the myth about the person who was so patient. There are people like that. Some are born that way, others work hard on themselves. We're all capable of it, and our lives are all better if we do it. So emuna is not philosophy, it's not a course you take at college, it's not a safer that you read. We're reading it to inspire that quality in us. And when we identify the things that challenge the quality and eliminate them, the quality can blossom and flourish and thrive. But if we don't, and we think we can have it all, I'm going to work on my amuna. but at the same time, I'm indulging my, my thirst for honor and ego. It can't have it all. There's a finite set of units. It's all how we allocate them, how we identify, determines who we are. And Amir Tashem will pick up with this next week.